everyone. Welcome to the Unfazed, Unedited podcast, where we provide commentary on complicated topics in an uncomplicated format. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm here with Dr. Lisa. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Um, it's been a long week, hey? <laughs> Absolutely a long week. This is kind of like my uh, my happy place here where I get to talk about all the things that I've been ruminating on. So that's a good thing. Um, but Lisa, let's dive right into phase one. All righty. So, okay, here's one I want to talk about phase one is I want to talk about book banning. <laughs> uh, and yes. um, the reason why I want to talk about this, well, there's a thousand reasons, but um, today I was listening to a podcast about Twitter, now now X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, um, and okay, it was it, it's chronicling um, its kind of rise and fall, I guess. And the episode I listened to today was about content moderation. And so they were detailing kind of the internal struggles about uh, free speech and being kind of a marketplace of ideas and how more speech is supposed to counteract bad speech and all of those good pieces. Um, and it came up around the censorship claims that people had when Twitter started to moderate more closely, right? So when they started to block people or kind of, um, remove tweets from the algorithm so they weren't showing up as much or putting notices above a tweet related to misinformation so misinformation and disinformation related to covid related to the election that's when it really started to ramp up in terms of their moderation and of course twitter got massive massive pushback so this made me think of all of the calls from groups that said twitter was practicing censorship um, and how problematic that was, and what a violation of people's free speech that was, and how outrageous it is. And yet it's that same group of people that tend to be behind these book bans that are happening in schools across the country, right? And so it just made me slightly annoyed, which is probably the a irony. polite way of saying it. The hypocrisy, right? The hypocrisy. Exactly, exactly. It, it's the, the, the lack of uh, how can I say the lack of critical thinking around how this is a parallel, similar, in fact, I would suggest more than similar situation where you are preventing people from speaking their truth. And, you know, for me, what I think is really interesting around the book banning piece is, okay, Lisa, the, the petty in me says, I want every single person who says they want a particular book banned to show evidence that you actually read the doggone book, right? Like it's it's almost the fear of the unknown. It's something different if you have a, a, a critical opinion of something that you've actually engaged in, okay? That, that's called critical thinking. But when you ban things for the sake of banning just because you kind of sort of happen to got through the ivy vine that, oh, well, this book is about, XYZ. Well, how do you know that if you haven't read the damn book? So that's my first thing is the, the banning of books that folks have not been engaged with. Um, but then too, what I think is really in interesting about the censoring piece, book banning often shows that it has the reverse effect of what they want. And so when Amanda Gorman's book was banned, 
sales went through the roof at that point because people were then saying, well, what in the world are they banning? What's wrong with it? I want to know. The critical thinkers went out and bought the doggone book to at least see what it was about. So I'm, I'm always that type of person that says, at least understand what you're disagreeing with before you make your blanket statements. And so the exact same thing people want to do, it actually kind of backfires because it actually promotes the book when like my goal, look, our goal should be that we have a banned book. We, we have a book on the banned book list because they clearly sell and no, they may not be in K through 12 education, but at the same time, I don't think school needs to be 100% responsible for everything that everybody reads anyway. That's a starting point, and I would prefer for them to be in schools, but my kids have a couple of banned books in the shelf on the shelf right now. So it doesn't prevent, right, but right. it definitely creates these barriers. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just fascinating that it actually backfires. Well, the other piece is I think in some cases people are reading the books, right? But they're making a judgment call about the fact that they don't want their kiddo to be reading that book. Like there's one with like two dads who are penguins or something. And I, I feel like that made it onto a band list somewhere. But, I you, know, that. We, yep. Yep. you know, it's like you as a parent, I suppose, have every right to determine what your child reads, but you don't have every right to determine what every other child reads. So, so in the case... You have a family that wants their kiddo to read the penguin book then they should be able to do that so i don't understand why um removing the book completely from a library in a school is not like is not forcing your opinion on other people right like i don't get right. how that logic isn't understood um because you know we talk about parental rights which is a another hot button issue right but it's whose parental rights Right. That's right. That's that's, right. that's where it feels. It's not the parental right. If I want my kid to read about a gay family, right? Apparently, exactly. I don't get that right. <laughs> I only mm -hmm. get that right if I don't want my kiddo to read about a gay family. Exactly. And so I'm I'm thinking to myself, yeah, there can be tons of books on the shelves, but if I don't want my kids to read that book, it's not my determination to say don't read it. Everybody else. I'm just going to make the determination for my kids that I feed and I clothe and I take care of your kids and your family can do whatever they want to do. And, and to that end, that's also what I hear from a lot of parents as well about other, I would say, less controversial issues, but still connecting to the upbringing of a kid. You know, think about, for example, with social media, for example. There are some families that do it at a younger age and others that do it at an older age. Well, I didn't say my kids can't have social media until they're 12. So therefore, I want to ban it for every kid. That's your house. That's your money. If you want to spend money right. on a, right. on a smartphone or what have you, you get to determine what happens in your house just as I do. But I'm not banning it for everyone. And so I think, you know, to that end, and we've talked about this with a number of topics around so-called protecting your kid doesn't mean that you get to limit everyone else's or right. protecting right. your mind and limiting someone else's. And so, you know, I, I just think it's very interesting that we come up with these blanket responses that you think are going to work and then they don't. And so, you know, how, how do we continue to, frankly, how do we continue to promote ignorance and lack of critical thinking or, you know, Having a kid read a book 
and then helping them to come to terms with whether they agree with it or not. And the process yeah, of yeah. thinking through rather than determining, hey, I'm telling you, you don't agree with that book. So therefore you don't need to read it. Wait a minute, what? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I had a conversation a while ago um, with one of my sorority sisters and it went to that point around their household feels that a couple and a married couple is a man and a woman. That did not prevent them from letting their child read certain books. And they didn't go out on this campaign telling everybody else's family what they could or could not read. They simply control for their household. I don't have to agree with what the next house is doing, but it it just always feels like it has to be this all or nothing experience. And I'm not for that, not for that. And and I think too, you know, it connects to the um, anti-defamation leagues that, that pyramid of hate is that the best way to start and misinformation and distrust and stereotyping of individuals is to not know about them and not know about their real yeah. lived experience. Yeah. And so if I'm a man and I've never read a book by a woman without her gendered experience, and I can just keep perpetuating the stereotype because there's no book out there that I've read to interrupt it and to give me actual information about a woman's experience. So just on and on and on with those identity pieces, it just, it feels like that first layer of that pyramid. And if you just let it blow up, then people just continue to function in ignorance. Yeah, I really like your point about not enabling your child to be able to think critically about whether or not they agree with the content of the book, right? Like by by removing that book from their bookshelf, then they have a missed opportunity where they can grow and develop their thinking patterns, right? And their belief system. And you're you're basically saying that they don't get to do that. And it's so that is a real that's I'd not thought about it that way before, but that's a really huge consequence, I would imagine. Well, and and then let's go to the adult consequence of that. The adult consequence is you have kids grow up to be adults who can't understand or articulate why they fully agree with something or fully disagree with something. Um, And so with that, we continue to rob them of these critical thinking experiences that they need in order to be fully functioning adults that aren't hateful, that aren't ignorant on particular topics. And so for me, yeah, I've, and this is probably just the educator that's sewn into my DNA, um, is that, yeah, I want my kids to read books that they possibly disagree with so we can have a conversation and they can become very articulate young people to tell me exactly why they disagree with something. Mm-hmm. If not, you have kids that have yeah. just, you know, they, they've walked out of your home misinformed and extremely challenged in communication skills. You, you can't just say, I disagree and walk off, but that's what adults do. Adults do it yeah. all the time that have not developed yeah. those critical thinking. Well, I don't agree with it, so I'm not voting for, or I'm not supporting. Mm-hmm. And, and when you ask a legitimate, and in fact, kind and caring question, well, tell me more as to why you disagree with X, Y, Z, and they can't articulate that. To me, that's more of the frustration. It's not the if we disagree or not. We don't have to agree. But when you have children that grow up to be adults that can't articulate their point of view, we're in trouble. We're we're very much in trouble. Yeah, I think there is a ripple effect there, right? And so then we end up, I mean, this is a 
very extreme way to put it. But if anyone's seen that movie, Idiocracy, from a few years back, with one of the Wilson brothers, I think, was in it. But essentially, yeah, the the world kind of devolves intellectually. And we are Mm. obviously a far cry from that, right? But if we continue to ban books, we continue to ban education about people's experiences, particularly those who have been marginalized and like significant portions of US history that, you know, true, (laughs) right? You're gonna end up with a group of group of adults who are very uneducated about what the way why the things are the way that they are, right? Mm Yeah. And I also think it's, um, you know, whose, whose feelings or whose rights matter more, right? Like a lot of the reason why anti-racism or discussions of white privilege, um, are being prohibited in the classroom and books about those experiences are being prohibited is because it makes white kids feel bad. Right. But, you know, it doesn't matter that kids of color, you know, feel bad all the time because of the living in a racist society right like their their experience is not important vis-a-vis white children so that's another piece of this um that i think has been surfaced by some critics but certainly not to the degree that it has been powerful enough to dissuade school districts from um banning or prohibiting certain material i'm looking at you florida but you know exactly yeah so yeah well, but but to your point, okay, so let's let's get to that. Let's get to that the phase two of comfort and preserving whose comfort, right? And what's so interesting about what you just said is that again, who is the priority? Whose feelings, who emotion whose emotions are the priority? And usually it's not the black and brown anybody, it's not the LGBT folks, it's it's not any of those marginalized folks. It's whomever is in the majority. Let's continue to comfort them by let's not mention that. Right. And what's really interesting, and I think about this on the the other side of the coin, I've connected with, worked with, considered colleagues, individuals who I would say are white allies or male allies or, you know, hetero allies that let's talk about their feelings when they are so steaming pissed off that someone did ban the books when they were kids and they did not learn about some certain things because there was an entire strategic system kept that information away from them so you know folks that i'll I'll use one that's just top of mind right now where you know white folks were saying oh my god I didn't know that Juneteenth even occurred. And now I'm not only pissed off that I didn't know, I'm now reflecting on all the different people, places, things, situations, context that had to go out of its way to make sure that I didn't know that information. We could go on and on and on about things that have occurred in history, for example. But, you know, to to whose comfort? And I think that's what's challenging to me. I think that's one of the things that you and I read about in uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, where there were there was a lot of mention around stories that were excluded and people say, why? And it's like, well, they're excluded when you ban books, entire books about the issue. Um, or let's deny that the issue even happened, so therefore let's not publish those books so that we can step over history that is harmful. And, you know, when Cass talks about, and also um, I believe it was uh, President Obama's book uh, that talked about those comparisons with Germany specifically, 
and how they named all the things, the travesties that they have done to the Jewish people over time, it's like, wait a minute, how is it that we have very clear examples of people not banning books and not censoring historical information despite the discomfort in the moment because they're trying to get to healing? And doing it intentionally. Right. Yeah. Um, so you've used this term and this focus on comfort is emotionally dishonest, right? Um, because we want to protect this group's feelings because we don't want our kids feeling guilty or ashamed, right? So it's couched in this protective, emotionally protective thoughtful, kind kind of bubble wrap, but really that's emotionally, it's emotionally dishonest and it is using emotions in a dishonest way, right? So it's both of those things because what's really happening there is it's making you uncomfortable and you don't, you want to, you just want to move on. Like it's just a get over it kind of thing, right? Like we're post-racial here. We had an African-American president, um, you know, right. and well, yeah, it's it's very frustrating how um, yeah. we are so white people in particular are so unwilling to wade into that emotional quagmire that it requires to really grapple with some of the ways in which U.S. history in particular um, mm -hmm. is impacting today. And we take that away from our kids. Right. Based yeah. on this kind of false sense that we're protecting them. Mm -hmm. We take this away from our white children to be more mm -hmm. specific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and okay, so that gets into the, with the emotional honesty thing, being emotionally dishonest seems to preserve the comfort of white people in general, white kids specifically. And so I'm thinking down the road again, you know, if we continue to shield information remove information selectively share information then part of me feels like the comfort preservation has a time limit at some point that time is going to expire because that information is going to emerge in one way or the other whether you learn about it in third grade or you learn about it when you are 53 63 93 and so you know given that are we delaying the inevitable by saying, I don't want to upset children right now? And, you know, to that end, so much literature about human development, child development talks about freaking resilience. It talks about the, the response. So, so let me give you an example of this. So when Trey was learning how to walk, we all agreed kind of as a family we're not going to have a heart palpitations every time he falls. Oh my God, Trey, are you okay? Are you going to be all right? It was more of a positive, Oops, you all right? All right, let's keep going because he was learning to walk at the time. And so if you immediately had this negative, punitive, oh my goodness, you're hurt response, then that's the way the child is going to respond. Right. And so with child development as well, when it comes to comfort preservation or hearing information that may seem harmful or may seem like you're tripping over your own history and falling on your face, what does it mean to say to respond in a positive way of, and I don't mean positive as in 
happy. I mean, positive as in developmental. Yeah, it sucks. And ouch, you got a boo-boo, but you're going to be fine. And you're going to get up and keep on walking through this history to a better place. And so for me, I'm like, how is it that we can do that when it comes to the mechanics of a child walking and trying to tease out their resilience, but we can't do that when we're trying to get a child to walk through critical thinking. To me, it's the same damn thing. It feels like the same thing. And so, you know, to that end, the, I feel very strongly that, yes, children are their own people. They're, they're little humans. And at the same time, they look to adults that they care about and that they trust, parents, teachers, etc for the type of emotional response that's okay. So if you keep saying every time you fall, it's okay to cry and wallow around in it versus when you fall, oh yeah, that hurt a little bit, dust yourself off, keep going. They're going to respond based on how you respond as a trusted adult. Why can't that be the same way with, uh, with reading, with information um, in such a way that we are emotionally honest and those small or large moments of discomfort still get them to a place of better critical thinking and kindness and empathy to people in the world. I'm not, I'm not understanding the difference between the two. I think they're very similar. Yeah, this is an interesting way to frame it. You're making me think of gender stereotyping, particularly with your falling over example and the ways in which you know, boys will be chastised if they cry and girls, mm -hmm. if they cry, will be coddled and, you know, hugged mm -hmm. and kind of taught that that is an appropriate response and kind of the, the downstream impact of that. Um, and that feels, I imagine, a parent who subscribes to more traditional gender roles and kind of the ways in which they treat cisgender boys and girls right that um they're thinking that they're emotionally honest right they're thinking that that is an emotionally mm. honest and appropriate way to respond within the bounds of what they believe to be mm. gendered ways of being in the world right mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. actually emotionally dishonest because to your point they're foreclosing on other ways of being in the world because of a particular belief in A, B, or C, right? But they're not saying that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It makes complete okay. sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so that's why, you know, I'm going back to your your point around the the parents and, and foreclosing on that. Now you're making me wonder. Okay, whose comfort is most important? Uh, majority group kids, definitely not minority group kids or adults in general. Like sometimes I think some of the comfort preservation is around, I don't want you to read that book about the two penguins because I don't wanna have to, as an adult and a parent, explain to you the nuance of it because I don't wanna go to that critical thinking point. So I don't wanna be uncomfortable either. So I wonder yeah. how much of it is that too. I think so. Right. And that is a great segue to phase three and actually phase one and phase two, like worked really well together. As oh, well. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily sure. our intention, but phase three is really building on this because it's building on your point, um, about adults. Right. And 
what yeah. we're hearing around being triggered. I don't know if you want to want to start us off there. Uh, well, Shauna. you know, here's the thing. So I have facilitated more than enough workshops, trainings, professional developments, etc. And the lion's share of individuals that brought up the language of trigger were white people, cisgender people, uh, on and on and on with the majority groups. And it makes me kind of stop in my tracks to think about how we, Lisa, forgive me if I'm getting the language incorrect on this, but I feel like it's how are we misappropriating language, specifically mental health language, to paper over discomfort that can be productive, right? Because I don't think that discomfort always has to be this thing we run away from. Discomfort right, right. can be a productive thing. And so, you know, the many, many examples I have where, for example, I'm thinking of one particular training where we were introducing ourselves with pronouns and a white cisgender male tried to interrupt our session by saying he felt triggered by the use of pronouns. And I'm not a mental health expert, but I do uh, have enough exposure to mental health literature and also therapists and so forth that support my family and myself, my children, et cetera. I know enough to know that triggers are quite different from discomfort. They are not the same yeah, thing. And I yeah. always wonder, is this just flat out misappropriation? Yeah, I mean, we don't know with that guy's background, right? Um, but I, I agree with you that to be triggered is to be reminded of something negative, likely traumatic that has happened in your past. And so, you know, we might think about triggers in the context of veterans, right? Or survivors of violence um, who smell something, see something, someone behaves a certain way, or there's a noise. And that creates like a physiological and psychological response. And that is different. Um, that is different. And I know that we have seen over the last decade or, decade or so a proliferation on social media of things like trigger warning or content warning, right? And to some degree, when you are posting about a war or um, sexual violence or something like that, that seems appropriate to me. But I think that in the same way that your clients might be saying, your clients with dominant identities might be saying they are triggered because talking about race scares them, makes them uncomfortable. I think the same thing is happening in social media and in classrooms yeah. that yeah. we are trying to bubble wrap everything because goodness knows we can't have anyone be discomfort, but it's in discomfort that you grow as a human, right? Right, exactly. And so my one of my good friends and I, we co-facilitate quite a bit and we use this picture of purposefully everything about the picture is intentional a little baby who happens to be a white baby in the gym trying to pick up this huge like 250 pound weight right and we're using it to be very flagrant with our example but it's literally like going to the gym and doing something that is going to be purposefully uncomfortable because it's improving you in some way so i'm not saying you know go in the room and upset people and put people in the hot seat for no reason, just for the sake of this, right. Right. you know, trying to be mean to someone or to punish someone. It, it is for a reason. 
we're having this uncomfortable situation because there's some learning that needs to happen or some growth or some reflection that needs to happen. And if we don't go through this discomfort of lifting this weight, then you will never build the muscle in order to have these conversations. And so, you know, when I go into a session and a conversation about slavery is quote unquote, a trigger to a white male individual, but I hear it may be a trigger to a person of African-American descent, African descent from the diaspora. I'm receiving that quite differently as a facilitator because for that majority group individual, I'm wondering, and waiting for them to fill in the blanks here, I'm wondering, are you masking discomfort as trigger? Because this is one of the few times that you've been required to have a conversation about slavery or you know, pick whatever oppression we can plug in there. And for the person of African descent, I'm making the assumption that of course they're triggered because there may have been some back experiences that I'm also waiting for them to clarify for me. So I don't make too many assumptions there, but I'm gonna hear trigger differently. And so, you know, with that, I just want white folks, cisgender folks, majority group folks to just be very careful and cognizant about are you naming something as a trigger because it is a, a part of your mental health makeup because it may have been something that is uh, connected to a previous experience or are you using this language because you know that there are good people in the world that respect mental health and so it's a great way to get people to back off you and not press you into productive discomfort that you need and you have not experienced yet i don't want to use that word you know loosely mm -hmm. in such yeah. a way that it disrespects folks that actually do yeah. have triggers and allows you know folks to weasel out of a conversation that needs to be had or training or professional development that needs to be had i just i just think we need to name yeah. that and not lose sight of what a trigger actually is. No, I totally agree. And I think our white supremacist that are much more permissive of white people using mm -hmm. them and getting away with then not having to engage in difficult conversations where someone yeah. who is experiencing marginalization, whether a woman or a person of color or a person, um, disabled person, person with disabilities, then the use of the term trigger, I think can sometimes then elicit a, instead of, oh, you're using the race card, right? You're using the trigger card, you know, oh, like okay. you're overreacting. So like a dominant, like an able-bodied person to a disabled person, you're overreacting, you're too sensitive, what do you mean yes. you're triggered? Whereas yes. our, so our culture is less allowing of marginalized people to identify triggers that are, in my opinion, depending on circumstances are perhaps more legitimate than a dominant person. But our culture yes. is so protective of the comfort of dominant people, white people, men, able-bodied people, straight people, right? Mm -hmm. That it's mm -hmm. a lot more permissive. And then folks aren't called out on it because of a fear of backlash, right? Oof. Oof, absolutely, absolutely. So they just don't touch it. Now, here's yeah. what just popped into my mind as far as what you were just saying there um, is how interesting is it where it's kind of like a, a role switch where folks who are constantly 
uncomfortable based on oppression and all its different forms, when they move to a place of comfort, it's questioned. And those that are never uncomfortable when they are moved to a place of discomfort, it's, you know, it's a war. I think that's also an interesting kind of switcheroo around that because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, for example, if I am the African-American person in a workplace or I'm the only woman or I'm, you know, whatever only marginalized group person, and I say, no, I'm not going to that book study on race. I'm not going to the, uh, the dialogue about Freddie Gray. I'm not doing X, Y. I'm not watching the video of the latest black brown person that was murdered on TV. I'm not doing that to protect my comfort or to protect my, even my mental health. That's questioned. Yep, That's questioned yep. immediately. Yep. Like no there, team I, player. Exactly. You're not no. a team player or you're not committed to the cause or I can't tell you how many videos of violence against black people I have not watched past Freddie Gray that I refuse to because guess what? I like to sleep through the night. I like to look at my boys and not be completely freaked out or look at my dad or whomever. So I do that to preserve comfort that I usually don't have. Right. Versus right. someone who usually has the comfort being pressed out of it. I just think that's a interesting switcheroo that I think we need to have more of, but that's just me. Yeah, because that white person or that dude isn't going to get questioned a whole lot about not going to a book club that is dealing with an identity that they don't have, right? Um, right. Absolutely right. not in the same way. That's really That's interesting, right. interesting way to think about it. Well, with that, that's a great place to end. Um, yes. Phase one, two, and three complete for this week um, <laughs> for our second unfazed, um, unedited recording and i didn't make a single mistake or at least i don't think i did but i didn't knock over the microphone so that is a win <laughs> wait a minute we we haven't logged off yet don't don't say it too quick. i know don't, i know right? Us, right um so um, shauna where can folks find us yeah absolutely so look you all can find us on youtube unfazed unedited you can just search for us and find us there and how about subscribing y'all go ahead and subscribe and so then you can subscribe click the bell so whenever we upload something whether it's a, a short or a full episode you can find us there it'll pop right up in your youtube feed um you can find us on instagram at unfazed pod linkedin at unfazed pod and look if you have a question that you want us to address it might even become an entire phase uh, in one of our episodes, upcoming episodes, send us an email at info at unfazedpodcast.com. And just a reminder, we do have the website, unfazedpodcast.com, where you can access the new as well as the old archives. Y'all know we have 115 episodes in the archives that touch on a lot of topics, um, especially intersecting with sport. So please continue to like, subscribe leave a review share it with your people listen to it in the staff meeting all all the things all the things um and just share them with all the people that in are in this particular phase of your life right lisa yeah absolutely well this has been fun i'm excited to keep this train moving so i guess we'll see you all next week see you next time